1: Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Chris am here until 10 o'clock tonight on 560 WQAM. To talk some Miami Heat here with Ira Winderman, who covers the Miami Heat for the South Florida Sun Sentinel. You check him out on Twitter at Ira Heatbeat. And Ira has returned from his sojourn across Sacramento in Las Vegas and is back home in South Florida and ready to talk some Miami Heat basketball. Ira, how are you doing, sir?
0: I'm doing good. I'm I'm hoping we can do today's interview only in one interview and there won't be. Literally, the emergency callback an hour later. I mean, I was the guy on the QAM airwaves. I guess it was last Wednesday, and I'm like, or or maybe even Thursday. It was Thursday like, night. No, yeah, no, that'll never happen. There's no way that Russell Westbrook's going to Houston with Chris. Come an hour later. Yes, Chris. Exactly as we thought an hour earlier. Yes, it was crazy.
1: Okay, now the new one is uh, is Chris Paul, and yep. w- and whether or not that uh, will be something that the Heat would consider. Do you think the Heat are considering it? And to, I, I posed it earlier as it has to be a pick positive trade that Correct. they net more picks than they give out in order for that trade to really be worth it if they can get back both of their original picks i would consider doing that trade but only if that happens are, yeah. are, are you sort of in a
0: similar place yeah i know it's funny because you're actually phrasing it to me with the heat trade for chris paul and it's honestly chris paul would be the trade filler right if i can get two first round picks for oklahoma city thunder I would consider taking on that additional year in 2021-22 and dropping the cap space, but that's what it would have to be. And and if you go by, by what Brian Windhorst was saying on SportsCenter yesterday, where they want something back in return, if I can get 21 and 23 back and then give them a conditional move, 24, 25, something like that, yeah, I would consider it for this reason, Chris. I want to maximize the Jimmy Butler years and the years on his contract, so... Yeah, I think I would do that. But really, Chris Paul is the filler. It's like, how can I get two first-round picks after losing two first-round picks?
1: But let's talk about him as a player, though, because I think a lot of people uh, have sort of written off Chris Paul, and look, I think he's staring down the barrel if Miami doesn't pull this trade-off of NBA Siberia, because there's no getting out of that contract. There is no, uh, like people say, oh, what if he took a buyout? His buyout would have to be $90 million for for it to be worth buying him out. Uh, But for me, when when you look at the way that that his last season played out, and people are going, well... He is now a, a less than superstar player because his numbers took a drop, and in the playoffs he didn't give enough for them to try and win the championship. I think he's a bit of an underrated asset from a playing point of view because he is a player that it basically just stood and watched James Harden play basketball for the last then, year for, you for you the last the, two and, years.
0: And you saw the splits. And when James Harden was off the floor, Chris Paul is a very productive basketball player. Mm-hmm. Last season for the Rockets also. So you're asking me a a, sort of a two-part question here. You're asking me straight up if they're both playing the same amount of minutes to the best of their ability, who is better, Chris Paul or Goran Dragic? No offense to Goran Dragic. I would say Chris Paul. But, Chris, here's part two of that equation. So it's not that I'm just subbing him in for Goran Dragic. I'm also subbing him in for a lot of the minutes that Justice Winslow mm. would play at point guard. And I still contend this. I know we spoke about it a lot last year also. I think the only highly efficient place for Justice Winslow in the lineup is it point guard or call the position what you want, point forward, but as a primary ball handler? And I think once the ball goes out of his hands, I know as a defender, I know as a defensive coach, I'm not paying a lot of attention to him on the court. So it's not only, okay, you're going to trade Goran Dragic with his $19.3 million, as the starting point for matching up you know, Chris Paul's contract. I get that. But if you're keeping Justice Winslow, Chris, I'm not so sure that Justice Winslow would be the same player because the minutes wouldn't be there. Chris Paul would probably play, eh, say, 32 minutes a game at point guard. So is there enough minutes on the floor? Are there enough minutes on the floor for Justice Winslow to do best what he does best?
1: Probably not, and the, the other aspect I mean, the the, the the thing that might work in the Heat's favor is that Chris Paul would also probably miss a fair few games, so you'd have Justice Winslow uh, sort of, but, but for me, so so you, you're now under the impression, we're joining him by Arrow Winderman and the Sun Sentinel, that Justice Winslow's future is as a point guard in the NBA and that ultimately, he might be a lesser player in a different role, yes. but the, the, the best way to maximize him now is to yes. only play him as a point guard.
0: Well, mostly play him as a point guard. Look, no one only plays one position because 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 it's a possession-by-possession game, and you're going to be cast in different roles. But I I think that was the best use of him. Chris, I'm just not sure. Even with the way he shot three-pointers, yes, his percentage was up last year when he was left wide open. He does not have the fastest release. So unless he's getting really good spacing, I'm not so sure. I would say the defensive coach is going to say, hey, track this guy at all times. He's a three-point threat. I don't think he's viewed that way. I don't think he's viewed as a finisher-off-the-cut off of getting the pass. I think he's more of a free train kind of player with the ball in his hands. So, yeah, I I just don't think when I'm casting my lineup for my next time I'm going to be chasing a championship and be a contender – I don't know where Justice would be. He's not athletic enough for a three. He's not really big enough for a four or opposing enough for a four. And, and, and is it two? I just Again, like a three, I just don't think he has that wing athleticism that you necessarily need. And more than that, I think he's comfortable on the ball. So that's part of the equation. If Chris Paul, at an average of $40 million, is going to be on your team for three years, he's going to be your point guard, yes. He's missed at least 21 games each of the last three years. But that's not the same thing as having a full-time role as just going in when a guy is injured.
1: But do you not think that's a concern for the Heat going forward with Winslow if he's going to stay on the team? And ultimately, in his career, is that ultimately – a a superstar player is a primary ball handler right someone who has the ball in their hands all the time yes, and if Justice winslow is not a superstar player and, and and he's has to be a primary ball handler then ultimately he's probably never he's probably never going to be that guy a point guard on a championship winning team
0: what he'll be i think is an efficient role player look they gave him a role player contract i know it sounds sure. crazy chris but 3 years flat at 13 million per year
1: with oh, a team role option. Player
0: numbers. That, that, yeah, that's role-player numbers. That's Kelly Olenek numbers. That's what you get for an ace man in today's crazy, wackified contract NBA. I think that's what he is right now. But you know what? He could also be an efficient role-player for this reason. Look, I think he could be very good as a point guard. But I think he can be good as a power forward, good as a small forward, good as a shooting guard. So he also gonna be a jack-of-all-trades. So when someone's injured, boom. If I have him in reserve, I can start him at the four, start him at the three, start him at the two, start him at the one. That's a good thing to have also. He can be a nice player. I'm, I'll give it to you point blank because I always do this with you. Do you think at any point in his career Justice Winslow will be an all-star? I don't. Okay, right. So then I think we're on the same page. Mm -hmm. I think you could maximize him at point guard... But I don't think you stress the maximization mm-hmm. of Justice Wins- Winslow as how you build your rotation and how you build your roster.
1: And ultimately, for me, how you justify your moves, right? I don't think you say, well, we've got to make this move so that Justice Winslow can remain the point guard. Yes. If you can upgrade a point guard Absolutely. or upgrade a primary superstar, you go and do it, even if it's at the expense of Winslow. Now, it's funny that we have these conversations, and then I start go looking things up. Uh, so last year, Justice Winslow took 256 threes and 171 one of them were classified as wide open, meaning yeah, they're six you. feet uh, between yeah. he and the defender so that's like nearly three quarters and he shot them well uh, but ultimately as you say, if a team dedicated more focus towards Justice Winslow, which we don't know if they would, would right. that shoot with that three-point percentage go way down by virtue of them them not all being wide open?
0: Yeah, there's two things as a three-point shooter you have to do. One, you have to make them, obviously. Yeah. But two, as you know, Chris, it's the quick release guys. The guys who have the long drawn out release, they can be mitigated by great closeout defense like the Heat had in their big three years. It's the guys who get them up quick like the Steph Curry and Clay Thompson's. Those are the guys you have to track because there's no time to spare. With a guy like Justice Winslow, if you're even running the closeout guy at him, there's a very good chance he's going to opt for the escape dribble anyway and you're therefore gonna take him off of that shot. So the second factor in it, is he a quick release guy? I don't think he is, and I think that makes the difference also. So so yes, you can upgrade, you're upgrading with Jimmy Butler, you're upgrading with Chris Paul. The ironic thing about both of them is I think those guys are sort of like hired assassins who were best to be on a team that's going to go deep in the playoffs? Because even though Chris Paul has struggled getting that deep, he can make the kind of play that can make a difference in a playoff series. The question is, number one, do you get to the playoffs? And two, can you make a deep enough run to really maximize those two players?
1: and uh, the other thing I looked up was the on off court with uh, Harden and Paul and it's it's astounding like Chris Paul uh, last year so per 36 minutes which is a metric mm-hmm. that they use uh, to sort of standardize the amount of time was right. a 22.12 uh, assist guy with uh, with Harden off the floor 43% from the field but 39% uh, from three I mean it's 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 a nine day difference I think Chris Paul could potentially be an undervalued asset if Absolutely. his if his contract well, did, didn't pay him $38 million yes. and
0: also and Jimmy Butler's usage numbers aren't anywhere close to James Harden so right. Jimmy Butler can play off the ball has played off the ball in many of his stops so you know that he could be that kind of player also mm-hmm. Chris Paul is an upgrade Chris Paul is an upgrade on whatever the Heat had a point guard last year no offense to everyone the Heat had a point guard again he's eating up that much of your cap the first two years don't matter Chris for this reason you're giving up of Chris Paul, I think it's like $36 million next year. You're giving up $19 million of Goran Dragic, because obviously you would have to swap him out. Mm-hmm. You certainly, if you put in Dion Waiters and James Johnson, I think you, number one, can survive without them. And that'll be money that was going to be on your books anyway for the next two years. Sure. So the only long-term year, what you're saying is, is taking on one additional year of Chris Paul at 36 years old too much. And you know what's going to change all this, Chris? Next week, I believe it's it's July 22nd, Bradley Beal can decide whether he wants to take his three-year extension from the Wizards. If Bradley Beal takes his extension from the Wizards, I think it's more likely Pat Riley considers pulling the plug and making a Chris Paul deal. Mm -hmm. If Bradley Beal sends up the smoke signal, I'm going to wait for 2021. I think that's when Pat Riley says, hmm, one more year of Chris Paul, or am I, I going to be in the Bradley Beal sweepstakes? And we all know what, what Bam Adebayo tweeted out last week, keeping an eye on when Bradley Beal was draft eligible, saying yep. Miami was the place he wants to be. So I think we all have to monitor the Bradley Beal extension deadline or, or opening date on the 22nd. If Bradley Beal says to the Wizards, thanks but no thanks, I think it's like three years, $111 million. Then it's game on for Pat Riley. Or does Pat Riley then go to the Wizards? If I can secure two first-round picks for you and a pick of any player on a roster other than Bradley Beal, would you deal now? And then think about it. So I'm gonna I'm gonna expand this, Chris, because you know mm-hmm. what? It's late. We can have fun with this, okay? <laughs> what if we do a three-team deal where I take Chris Paul for whatever pieces are necessary from Oklahoma City, and then I trade. Maybe even Justice Winslow and two first-round picks I get from Oklahoma City for Bradley Beal. Would you be up for that?
1: Um, Yeah, to me... Positioning yourself to go to go and get Bradley Beal is probably more important than getting Chris Paul. But again, to me, it, it depends on what you get back in terms of picks. If you can get pick neutral again uh, fr- from this trade, it allows you to, to execute trades like the Bradley Beal trade. Because right. um, whether you're signing him into space, you're trading for him. Uh, Bradley Beal uh, is going to be something that costs you a lot. Whether it's salary cap space or first-round picks, um, that's something that the would have to be prepared for. But uh, yeah, to me... Like and, and the other thing that, that you mentioned in this hypothetical scenario in terms of waiting for July 22nd for this extension uh, right. to potentially kick in is that the Heat have time on their side. They don't have to make this trade tomorrow. They don't no have to one, make this trade no in the next month. Has,
0: no one has to. This is not like yeah. those deals the Heat had with Whiteside where they had to get under the hard cap Mm -hmm. where they couldn't finish the Butler signing you're absolutely right on that and I think the Heat are also looking at Goran Dragic as the kind of asset that a team that's a contender and their point guard gets injured during the summer during camp early in the season might say hey we need this guy now maybe even the Lakers or a team like that where they can trade with another team's cap space to make something move you know to make something work so that's possible also I think the Heat make this deal the first moment they could wind up plus two in first-round picks in any kind of equation, maybe even drawing a third team into it.
1: Joined here by Ira Winderman of the Sun Sentinel here on WQAM. I just wanted to ask you before you go about uh, the Deion Waiters thing. Now, uh, I was saying in the, in the last segment, so for those of you that don't know in the audience, Deion Waiters posted a message on Instagram. I don't know if it was necessarily It's really explaining uh, what happened to him in terms of uh, in terms of his weight gain last year, and now his weight loss, now he feels so bad better place, but that he went through sort of a period of, of depression a year ago from the amount of criticism and the inability to play basketball as a result of the injury. Now, uh, what I was saying in the previous segment was I don't feel bad for saying that Deion Waiters was out of shape because he was out of shape, and ultimately it's a fundamental requirement of being a professional basketball player Correct. while also saying that the cruelty of people on social media probably goes a bit too far sometimes.
0: Yes, it does, but here's the thing I don't get about all these athletes and the cruelty of social media. Why do they pay attention? I yeah. mean, I know, Chris, I, half the time I never look at my mentions or things like that. I know there are people very into that. They think it's important to connect with the readers. I'm lucky I do a thing called Ask Ira at com. I get real questions from people who actually have to give me their names and their emails. So it's a little less you know, easy for them to be anonymous there. But I think most athletes need to turn that off. I, I think athletes have enough way to get feedback from family, from coaches, from teammates, from people they actually see face-to-face. So one... I'm sorry, Dion, you were offended by people in your mentions, but you don't have to go there. Number two, like you mentioned, Chris, he was out of shape. And number three, what bothered the Heat more than anything is that he went through his rehab out of shape. And their feeling is, and certainly if you talk to any personal trainers, you have to come into rehab in your best possible shape. That's what facilitates a faster rehab. So the Heat were upset about this. I'm glad that Dion believes he's back in shape. I'm going to wait for the Heat to do all their testing and know that. And to see it, but you know what? I think it's like, I, again, i am even mentioned it in my story today at the Sun Sentinel. Some people refer to what happened to Dion as body shaming. I think there are certain jobs that body shaming is sort of part of the job in the fact that as an NBA player, I think it's a job requirement to be in shape. Is that asking too much?
1: And the point that I was making is that the Heat, so they talk so much about their culture, right? Mm-hmm. Isn't the culture ultimately, if we distill it down, you are more committed to your craft here than you are in other places, yeah. and almost the fundamental tenet of that is being in shape. Like they obsess yeah. about being in shape. So yeah. I'm, I'm again, when when people get mad at me for saying that the Heat being mediocre is so against type with the Heat, they're the ones that call themselves a the championship organization. And when right. when when you say that Dion Waiters is out of shape, that is the ultimate disrespect to the culture, which is the thing that Heat fans and Heat organization members most hold up.
0: And when they gave you the ultimate respect of a four-year, $60 million contract is when they said, well, we believe you can follow the culture. That's why they were so upset at him. That's why they were upset at James Johnson. It wasn't a matter of in shape or not in shape or getting there. It was you had an injury, injuries happen. But when you started your rehab, you didn't start from the best possible position, and we took care of you. We invested the ultimate faith in NBA cap dollars to you, and this is what you gave us. So so I, I think some of the shaming was brought on by the players themselves. You can be fat elsewhere. You can go to other places and not have your body fat. It used to be, remember Bill Foran was the former coach. Players used to joke how he would chase him around the building with his calipers to get their <laughs> body fat, to measure their body fat. That's what he'd do. You knew that. When yeah. Dion took the $60 million, he knew $50 million, he knew that that was the case. So to me, you knew what you were getting into. So yeah, if someone called you out of shape, if they called you fat, if they called you whatever, they meant as it vis-a-vis as related to the Miami Heat, and he was. If he's back with the program now, God bless him. I hope the injury and all the work it took to get here didn't take too much out of him, but at least he gives himself a fair chance
1: uh now before we go um this uh this just happened breaking news <laughs> no it, it's it, it's not that big uh so so <laughs> yeah I'll call you again in 10 minutes uh the Rockets uh officially announced the acquisition of of of, right. of Russell Westbrook uh for Chris Paul in two first round picks there was a thought that they were sort of leaving it open to see if they can work Miami in Miami in as the third team in the trade but it's going to go ahead with Chris Paul going to Oklahoma City first and then they'll figure it out from there so I guess right. that that, I that little detail has been sorted yeah.
0: And, and that nothing is imminent with the heat because right now they're sort of at loggerheads just like they were mm-hmm. with the Thunder asking the heat for BAM and for Justice and for Tyler Hero. And the heat basically just drew the line. So now it's a matter of who's going to bend or not bend. And Chris, what I'm curious about more than anything is this. How is Chris Paul going to play it? Is he going to be a good citizen and deal with it? Or through his agent and through his people, is he going to make life miserable for the thunder? That's what we're about to find out in these intervening two months before training camp opens.
1: So you really never check your ad replies?
0: I, I rarely do. Sometimes if someone mentions I made a mistake, they will bring it out to me. But you know what? You can make yourself crazy. And the worst Agreed. part is I don't, but my wife does. And so she yeah. texts me. You got to block this guy. You got to <laughs> block this guy. You so basically, she tells me who I need to block. Yeah. And you know what? The worst part is because people are probably listening. They then contact my son, who sometimes <laughs> has helped me tweet, and he unblocks people when I don't even know about it. So it really is a family affair, Chris.
1: It, you know, it really is. Listen, I, I've I've dealt with the same thing on a far smaller scale. But sometimes people will say mean things about me, and I'm I'm getting texts going. Hey, is everything okay? Like, is this person going to try exactly, and find yeah, you? Yeah. But yeah. Uh, ultimately, it's it's utterly meaningless. Ira Winderman, check him out on Twitter at Ira He. And I very much appreciate his time, and hopefully, we won't have to call you in an hour.
0: And hopefully, not. And people don't stalk me. Thank you, Chris. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Ira Winman joining us here. Chris Whittingham on 560 WQAM. Radio.com.
0: Radio.com.
1: Music has modernized at gentlemen's clubs since this song came out. But when the song came out, it's like a Mount Rushmore of Gentlemen's Club songs, right?
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. I'll say this though. If you go to Universal Studios, to completely flip this conversation. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs>
1: exactly. Exactly the opposite direction. They yeah. have
2: a rock and roller coaster there. Of and course, this is one of the choices on there. And I and I, it's no, it's no longer Aerosmith's rock and roller coaster. Well, the Aerosmith rock and roller coaster is at Disney, at Disney MGM oh, or Disney Hollywood okay. Studios. Yeah, yeah Universal, yeah. they have a, they have a, another rock
1: and roller coaster. Interesting. But
2: you can choose your song, and this one is the one I pick.
1: Got it. Chris winning game here until ten on. Uh, 560 at WQAM. I've just been informed by the higher-ups that this will be the last show done from these studios. I don't know how long WQAM has been broadcasting from these studios in this building. I know that they were once in a trailer uh, somewhere in in Pembroke Pines, I think. Um, I'm not too in tune with the history of WQAM in terms of location purposes, but Uh, I mean, no, we got to play this at the end of the show, but uh, (laughs) Uh, listen, I love this song. I I, I don't know if I'd make it my karaoke song, because for me, the key to karaoke is uh, songs without singing talent. Yes. Where, where, like, you got to hit some notes in this song, and I I, I mean, you get people to sing with you, but I don't know if that would go very well. Well, what's your go-to in karaoke? I would probably say... Now, the only time I ever did karaoke was at a 790 The Ticket Station event, and I sang Taylor Swift Shake It Off.
2: Wow. Because I thought it would be
1: funny. Um, I was terrible. Um, But I would probably say Biz Just a Friend. That's a good one. Because there aren't really notes to hit in that song that are, like, that hard. Right?
2: I could go the opposite way. See... I, I don't mind hitting the notes, even if I hit them terribly, because at yeah. least it'll be fun. Yeah, like I, I go, I go with like George Michael's "Careless Whisper." <laughs>
1: that one. Well, th- to me, the other, the other bad thing about songs like "Careless Whisper" and even this song, is that you have to go through long periods. Like for me, songs with solos don't work right? Because on top of the fact that you're not singing for 40 seconds, it's also the crappy musical version. Like it's Because karaoke karaoke songs are not the song, they're just the instrumental version that they pluck for karaoke that sound like empty and tinny. And so you're just standing around the stage trying to do something with 40 seconds of a solo when it's not the actual song and people just staring at you. So you want to have a song that's singing the whole time. But I mean, I, I could I could belt this out if you wanted to. But so uh, again, I don't know the history too much of these uh, studios. Uh, but here on our 441, uh, just uh, north of Miami Gardens Drive Studios, uh, we are uh, we are departing. We are heading off to a new location. It's off of uh, I think Biscayne and 79th. Does that sound right? Some Biscayne and yeah.
2: 96.
1: Right yeah, so, so somewhere somewhere in that realm. And uh, Joe Rose will be coming from there tomorrow morning. Um, hopefully everything goes off without a hitch. If not, maybe they'll, they can just replay my Ira Winderman interview from, from, uh, from 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. But hopefully everything goes off uh, without a hitch. But we will be coming to you from a new place, which doesn't really matter to you, the listener. It'll be pretty good equipment, I'm assuming, with, you know, uh, the, the padding required of a studio to make it sound uh, whole and nice. Um, it won't sound any different. But we'll be going to, to a different place of work. And really, maybe you get a heightened sense of joy from us because, first off, it's everything is brand new. And there are windows there. <laughs> windows, in general, make people feel good. So uh, we'll get to see the outside world as we do the show. Well, uh,
2: before we move, move on to the new dude digs, i just like to say, you know, I'll never forget the first time I walked into the studio. Like, it was... It was, like, crazy to me because I grew up listening to 560 WQAM, and I went through a lot of phases in my life to kind of, like, realize this is kind of where I wanted to be. And just the whole all struck about being in here. For sure, for sure. The first time I sat in your seat and did a show, running shows here from this side on the board. I've had a lot of good times, a lot of bad times, a lot of "WTF am I doing here?" moments. <laughs>
1: yeah, I mean, we have those all the time around here. But uh, yeah, but I mean,
2: I'm sad to see her go.
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't have that same uh, level of uh, reverence because I mean, I, I I did grow up listening to WQIM, but ultimately it's the it's the second radio station I've worked at, and it just like studios are studios, and I was just like, wow, oh, this is on the second floor. But yeah, I mean, being on the microphone in a sensibly a place where I don't know if Neil Rogers ever did a show from here or, or somebody I don't like think that, Neil did, but I know Jim yeah. did. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, these are, these are hallowed grounds in, in the history of Miami sports radio. So, uh, at least these are hallowed airwaves. So, uh, it has been a genuine pleasure to share them and continue to share them, uh, at our, uh, new place of business, uh, a bit further South of here. But, uh, uh, I want to thank everyone, obviously, for uh, for listening to us uh, through the through the years. And uh, thanks to the radio station for getting us some new days. Looking forward uh, to our place at the Citadel. But we march on uh, with sports. And I actually, Danny, want to finish the rant that I had started. I, I don't know. They're not really rants. They're just sort of monologues uh, that uh, I was in the middle of when the Russell Westbrook trade happened. Remember last week? I oh, yes, was, University of Miami I was doing thing. a University of Miami rant, and I and I had some day some data to back it up. I didn't finish it because literally I had to stop mid sentence, mid thought to go. Wait a second, Russell Westbrook's been traded. Everything is uh, everything is going haywire now. So here is that point for those of you that missed that uh, magical bit of radio. Uh, actually, uh, do I really need to read uh, Sam Sam Presti's, uh statement? No, I don't. Um, so. Um, my point with the University of Miami is that, and I've said this all off season, is that the Heat, the the Hurricanes, might have just gotten a good deal better in the prospect of their future. They got some guys in the transfer portal for this year and for next year, and you know they they brought in a new punter and a new offensive coordinator, and obviously they changed head coach. And I think that Manny Diaz has the potential. To be a Dabo Swinney type of figure. I'm not saying he will be Dabo Swinney because Dabo Swinney has built a championship juggernaut at Clemson. But what I mean is, is an upwardly ascendant, highly motivated, understanding of the environment, young assistant coach that maybe gets a job a little bit above his station, let's be honest. Right, because Manny Diaz was gonna be the head coach at Temple before he became the head coach of the University of Miami. This is a step up from even the esteem that he was held in two weeks before he was hired to be the University of Miami job. But when people went when Clemson hired Dabo Swinney, I don't think a lot of people were going, This is gonna be the next great college football coach. His word, he was the receivers coach at Clemson, who was an interim for a fired coach. They had a decent season, but I think a lot of people were underwhelmed. I think if you go back and look at uh, the grade, like the, the grading of all the hires that they do, I think ESPN gave the hire like a D-plus or a C-minus or something like that because Dabo Swinney was not thought of in great terms. I actually think there's a lot of symmetry between Manny Diaz and Dabo Swinney, and a major part of that is this sort of highly motivated Wanting to be a front-facing guy, creating a new face of a program and trying to turn around something, that's a little bit of doldrums. And look, I'm not saying that the Miami Heat, or I I keep saying Heat, I've I've had way too much heat on the mind for the last few weeks, but the Miami Hurricanes um, were in a terrible place, but they were in a trending downward place uh, with the way that last season ended, with the offensive place that they were in. We'll get to that in a second. But they were trending down, and they were starting to lose recruits. Their, you know, their top class of 2020 and 2021 uh, were starting to fall apart a bit. On the recruiting trail, they were losing. It didn't seem like they had a route to getting back. It didn't seem like they had an answer at the quarterback position on the roster. And things were a bit grim, which is weird because the year before, they were ranked number two in the college football playoff rankings. But it wasn't going particularly great in that moment. And so, Manny Diaz is kind of meant to inject some life into the program, and I think he has, right? You can say, before he's even coached a game, that he has definitely turned around this program, gotten recruits excited about the place, got players excited to play for it, and maybe, and this is the part that I think is the unknown, I think you can say through the spring, so, so I, I'm, I'm quoting here from a piece that, Barry Jackson wrote in the Miami Herald uh, about the quarterback situation uh, with Nicosi Perry and some of the things that happened last year that he was protected from by virtue of not being ready mentally to play the position. He's only a redshirt freshman. It's not entirely harsh, but uh, this is on Perry from Barry Jackson. Though he clearly improved this spring on and off the field, Nicosi Perry's preparation was a problem last year, UM people say. Former coach Mark Richt had no confidence in his ability To get UM out of bad plays and into better ones. Center Tyler Gaultier uh, was given some of the responsibilities that ideally would be handled by the quarterback. Dan Enos won't allow that, Jackson writes. But it's not just Enos verbalizing that to Perry that should make a difference. It's also Perry knowing that these are the areas in which Tate Martell excels. Uh, So... Tate Martell, according to the reports and according to Barry Jackson and according to the coaches, um, his greatest strength is the mental side of his game—that he knows what to do and he knows and he sees the field in a way uh, that is different than the other two quarterbacks, Jaron Williams and Nikosi Perry—and that's why he was brought in to at least compete for the job. We really don't know where it stands from a handicapping point of view. I genuinely think heading into fall practice that any of those three guys can be the quarterback, but this season. Won't actually be a difference on last year in terms of on-field results, unless they can turn around the quarterback position and ultimately seeing the same improvement that Diaz came in that that Manny Diaz came in and brought when he became the defensive coordinator one year to the next. So, so in 2015, the last year of the Al Golden regime, when Larry Scott also took over as an interim. The Miami Hurricanes were 86th in the country in yards per play defense. And everyone remembers. It was abysmal. Everyone remembers their their alignment against Georgia Tech and the triple option. Everyone remembers the number of times that they were shredded uh, again and again uh, by opposition. And sometimes they'd play shootouts. They'd be fun games. But Miami was getting their bleep kicked on the defensive side of the ball. One year to the next, Miami went from 86th in yards per play defense, which for me is the measure, Right? it's you know the best use of total plays in the game in terms of pace and in terms of effective defense they went from 86th to 9th in 2016 to 12th in 2017 and 3rd in 2018 the miami hurricanes last year went 7 and 5 in the regular season and still managed to have even going 7 and 6 overall in the year the third-best defense by yards per play, only giving up four th- 4.3 yards per play in the whole of the season. They were exceptional defensively a year ago, which you wouldn't think given the fact that they, did had, they had a fairly pedestrian season, but their offense was so bad. And Manny Diaz has legitimately changed the way that the Hurricanes play defense in a sustainable way because it's been three years now with an influx of you know, old players coming through and leaving and now new players coming in. Miami's good on defense now, and it's because of Manny Diaz. We can definitively say that, right? And also the poor way that Mark D'Onofrio and Al Golden uh, maximized the talent on the roster. But a similar turnaround needs to happen on offense. It feels harder, right? Offensively, you just look at a, you look at a group of players that failed so spectacularly last year and held Miami back so spectacularly last year, it's hard to look at the same group and go, well, they can turn it around with the same amount of talent because of the change in coaching. Offense seems to be a bit harder to fix in terms of complexity, in terms of understanding, and ultimately, the first time that an offense plays, they have so much to figure out, whereas defensively, it feels like you can be operating on a higher level. But here are the benchmarks for where Miami was a year ago. They were 75th in yards per play offense. They were 24th in yards per rushing attempt, which is good, and they were 116th in passing yards per attempt. That is appalling. <laughs> I mean, that is, so they were 116th level with the University of Connecticut and Kent State. I mean, you will go through the list of passing yards per attempt and find Miami in some truly terrible company. Rice. Western Kentucky, Akron, Ball State, Tulsa, Miami of Ohio, Wake Forest, Liberty, SMU, Charlotte. These are all teams in the 80s and and, and below that are above Miami in passing yards per attempt. 116th in the country. In total, Miami Hurricanes quarterbacks had 2,000 175 passing yards, in total, had a completion percentage of 51.1%. 19 touchdowns, 14 interceptions. I I mean, it is abysmal, abysmal. 118th in completion percentage, 51%. Washington State last year completed 70.6% of their passes. Ohio State with Dwayne Haskins, 70.6% of their passes. Miami was bottom of the barrel from a passing offense point of view. They can blame everyone offensive line, quarterbacks, coaching, receivers, everything. Everything is involved there. But the silver lining and what can make their season turn around is if the real culprit was the coaching and that they actually have talented players. They have a talented quarterback. Maybe they even have three. In Martell, Jaron Williams, and Nikosi Perry. They have multiple talented running backs in the backfield. They have five-star, they have four and five-star receivers. Jeff Thomas is coming back. You have some young tight ends that got some experience last year, maybe a a year from then can step up. In that in the aggregate, the increase in the coaching level can make such a difference that the University of Miami goes from being one of the 15 worst passing offenses in the whole of college football to 30th? 30th in the country. If the Hurricanes go from 116th to 30th in yards per passing attempt, which is still not great. I mean, there are some, there are some teams that don't have a great deal of success. 30th in yards per passing attempt is around 8 yards per attempt. Hawaii was there last year. That's roughly the place that you need to get to. If they're 30th next year, first off, we can say that Mark Richt was holding them back. And we can say that Miami will be markedly improved. Improved to a degree that they can win the division again. They can win 10 games again. Because I feel pretty confident saying they're going to be good on defense. And I can feel pretty confident in saying that I really like what I saw last year from Cameron Harris, one of their running backs. I I think he's going to be a star. Cameron Davis. Well, he was Davis. He's now Harris. He's
2: now Harris.
1: Yeah, Davis. yeah. I, I think it's something to do with which parent he's named after. But he has decided to go uh, with Cameron Harris. But I think he was enough of a star last year that you can anchor a running game around his skills. And for me, if the Miami Hurricanes can improve drastically on the basis of coaching one year to the next, and get their quarterback position in the right place. It can be a 10 or 11 win team, but that ultimately is the difference between them having success and them not. And maybe this is a longer term project. And maybe to expect Dan Enos to take Perry and you know what was a Rosier, now Williams and Martel and turn them into a you know 65, 66 percent uh, completion team from a a 6.1 yards per attempt team to an 8 or an 8.2 yards per attempt team from one year to the next, maybe that's an unreasonable ask. But it could also turn around in one year and all of a sudden the University of Miami is competing at the highest level. That's all it takes. But that can also be a Herculean task. And if they come out against the University of Florida and can't move the ball through the air, not going to be surprised. And I'm not going to blame Manny Diaz or Dan Enos for it, because it will it will signal that there's a lot to clean up there, and there's a lot to fix, and there's a lot to get better. In that, ultimately, you can't expect it to change one year to the next, as did for the defense. Maybe defense is easier to fix than offense, but Miami could, if they fix that one thing, change dramatically and fix who they are as a team. But If they don't, I'm not going to get mad at them, and they could have the exact same season they did a year ago, and I still think that the Manny Diaz hire was great. But they could potentially really surprise and ascend in college football to a place that I don't think a lot of people are expecting them to because coaching is that big of a difference. And it can be in college sports. It just can. And I think Danny knows could potentially be that guy. My bet would be, though, that it takes longer than a year to fix because you're starting from a low place, man. I don't think people realize, I mean, for a college football team in 13 games to have 2,175 yards of passing offense is almost impossible. It's almost impossible. I mean, there are teams like Ohio State last year at 5,100 passing yards.
2: Well, come on. I mean, I think it's easier to see the turnaround in the offense from this perspective alone. It wasn't that bad the year before. This seems to be like a one-year aberration. And it did sure. seem to me like the like there was no confidence in the quarterback position. The play calling seemed pretty unimaginative. Yeah. I mean it, it upset Jeff Thomas to the point he left school. Yeah, so
1: now I will say completion percentage was just as bad the year before. I mean Malik Rose here even when they're winning games. I mean you you remember I mean the away Florida State game. Remember the away Florida State game that they won. I mean, he he completed like thirty five percent of his passes in that that game. game, By the way, yeah, so was I. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, the year before, fifty three percent completion. But yeah, I mean, in terms of production, they had a thousand fewer passing yards one year to the next. I mean, whether that's play calling, whether that's personnel, whether that's something, you can see Miami getting back to that level, maybe even a little bit better uh, with the change in the coach. But sometimes, my my basic point in all this is that sometimes it can just be the coach, especially. In College football. Chris Winningham here until 10 on WQAM. Radio.com. Radio, radio. Radio. Radio.
0: Radio. Radio. Radio.com.
1: I'm not song I do karaoke. But again, no one would listen to these songs. And, song. and, another song with a riff. Like, uh, you know, yeah. a, minute, a minute-long solo, where you just got like, air guitar or something like that. You have to have the charisma to pull that off a of karaoke, where you, you can't sing, but there's music going on. I can
2: do that sometimes. You could. Give me enough money Alright.
1: <laughs> I, I think the point of this show so far, this 8 o'clock hour so far, is I don't do enough karaoke. Because I've got a lot of ideas. Just, uh, you talk
2: about like I I got to wonder like what, what karaoke places are you going to cuz a lot of karaoke places have like the full songs just without the lyrics. Now I know yeah. some, some of the cheaper ones have kind of like the the half right track. They kind of kill the right track yeah. and that has the vocals and then they just get yeah. the left track out but yeah,
1: I just I assume cuz sometimes I hear karaoke versions of songs and they sound like crap.
2: Yeah, I know but, that's, that's but, if but, but on, like a cheap Oh yeah, place. I mean
1: yeah, exactly. I mean maybe maybe there are places that that have that covered. Um Sorry, I, I, just, I like the whistle on the beginning of the uh, of the riff there. Chris Whittingham here in 10. thanks to Ira Winderman for joining us earlier on in the program. I uh, want to talk plenty of football here over this uh, second portion of the program. Uh, I want to talk about Josh Rosen here because I read a stat uh, from Kian Fahey of pre-snapreads.com. Now, uh, he released his quarterback rankings today, and they have drawn some rancor uh, in the uh, internet community because he's got like Marcus Mariota above Tom Brady on on performances of last year um he's a guy that values accuracy a lot and tends to demerit players for things that they do in schemes rather than what they just basically making difficult throws accurately and completing them now he doesn't ding players uh for or quarterbacks for not completing passes if you th- if you throw in a catchable ball and the and the receiver drops it, so there there are some things in there to to try and eliminate the noise, uh, but some people still have a problem with it because Marcus Mariota was above Tom Brady last year, but one of the things that, that and, and so there there is data within that is certainly worth uh, picking through. So last year Josh Rosen had sixty eight point point seven percent of his passing yards come on screens or after play action, the highest rate in the league which if you compl- if yards are coming from screens that means you did nothing <laughs> you've you've thrown a nice floated ball from 3 yards away that sent the receiver away or play action that generally means that you're getting the advantage of the other team preparing for the run and then you throw against a sort of misshapen formation so that could potentially be seen as Josh Rosen not really excelling in the kind of areas that you want him to excel in, which is it's third down and 11. you got to drop back to pass and throw it 12 yards or more and figure out a way to do that and throw the ball down the field accurately and throw the ball to all kinds of spaces around the field. And ultimately, these are things you do for rookies, right? It's not going to be easy for rookies to survive in an NFL environment without this sort of help. And – he also writes that Rosen doesn't have a strong arm, nor was he close to accurate as a rookie. He moves very well in the pocket, but outside of that, there is nothing for the Dolphins to build on moving forward. Um, so, he views Rosen as a low ceiling, a low ceiling player, which I think a lot of people said uh, when the Dolphins traded for him and were considering trading for him was that ultimately this was a guy that proved even in one season that he's not going to be a franchise changing quarterback, which is my standard now. Just as I was saying earlier, that you don't give out first round picks as a basketball team, unless you think he can get you towards winning a championship. I view the quarterback position now the same way in the NFL and why I'm almost looking forward more towards the 2019 college football season. And we've had our crew of people out in, uh, in Georgia and in Chicago for big 10 media days and in California soon for for PAC 12 media days uh, and for in North Carolina for ACC media days, because For me, college football next year might end up being the more interesting thing uh, with the Dolphins at the quarterback position and figuring out if Tua or Justin Herbert or Jake Fromm or uh, Love, the Utah State quarterback, Jordan Love, uh, is going to be a franchise-changing quarterback because I've kind of already made the determination that Josh Rosen not really going to be that guy. And maybe we'll end up being proven wrong and he'll have a great season. And he will defy these expectations. But you read the guys that study the film and have evaluations and thoughts on Josh Rosen that he's just never going to be—he's not a high-ceiling player. That He's just not going to be the guy that's going to change organizations. And there there aren't really a a, a great deal of signs to point to the contrary other than pedigree, really, because even in college— it wasn't particularly great for Josh Rosen, which I think is a point that a lot of people made at the time of the trade. Was that even in college he was? I mean, they never had a great deal of winning success UCLA, and his numbers are not especially gaudy. It's not like he came into the league with Kyler Murray numbers or or numbers that would suggest that you know okay this is a prolific passing offense. He had moments. I mean, incredible moments. I remember a game that they I think they were forty two to seven down against Texas A and M. Um, Or was it the contrary? I don't remember. But either way, a game against Texas A&M where at times in the game he looked incredible. And the one good thing uh, that Fahey writes about Rosen is that he had one redeeming quality last season, which was he was the second-ranked clutch passer in quarterback charting, hitting 69.1% of his passes in clutch situations. So maybe uh, there is that. Now, obviously, he came into the NFL, uh, you recall. In for a two-minute drill, I believe, in relief of Sam Bradford. And this was his first—it was a one-score game. Sam Bradford was so bad that they decided to go to Josh Rosen. And it was for a two-minute drill. Like, his first involvement in the NFL is a two-minute drill to win a game. Go on, son! And it's just—I mean, it's the worst possible situation you can put a player in. But next season, if—presuming he gets a run in the team, which I think he will— I just can't see, unless Ryan Fitzpatrick is so clearly better out of training camp, that Josh Rosen isn't going to be the starter from day one. And if he isn't the starter from day one, you've answered your question, right? Maybe Ryan Fitzpatrick starts the first five games, but you're ultimately going to be relying on Josh Rosen either proving himself or not proving himself over the majority of the season. If he doesn't, then you go again in the draft, which I think ultimately was the place that the Dolphins felt like they were in. But it's amazing to me going into next season just how much more I'm looking forward to college football, watching the games of Alabama. And with a sense of anticipation, I normally dreaded watching Alabama. hate Alabama. And don't want them to succeed. But now I'm going to watch them next year going, man, I I hope Tua comes back from that injury healthy and everything is fine with him and he's taken care of and he goes into the NFL as – The prospect that I believe him to be, which is franchise changing. I think Tua Tunga-Vailoa is he's like the quarterback of my dreams. And and I I read this great piece of analysis from Dane Brugler, who writes on the NFL Draft uh, for The Athletic. I wanted to have him on the show last week, but he couldn't do it. And He said the following, When evaluating the quarterback position, I frequently find myself referencing many of the qualities that legendary head coach Bill Walsh desired in his quarterbacks. The top attribute on his pyramid was a phrase he dubbed spontaneous genius. The ability to make the great spontaneous decision, especially at a crucial time in a game, Walsh Walsh pegged this single trait as the separator between great quarterbacks and good quarterbacks. Meaning in a pressure situation, and you're, you're dealt with pressure, and maybe your scheme has been better, and you make a play anyway, in that Tua specializes in that, that he makes throws that you never expect him to make. Had a bad national championship game, but won the one the year before. And week in, week out against SEC defenses, which are the best in college football, shredded them to pieces. And so next year, as a Dolphins fan, I think I'm more looking forward to watching Tua than I am to watching Josh Rosen. now. Josh Rosen being traded for, and being sort of a famous quarterback in a way, does intrigue me about next season, right? And when I go to training camp, we get into 11-on-11s, we get to scrimmages, and we're on on 11-on-11s, or 7-on-7s, and we get to preseason, and we watch Josh Rosen play, and then if he starts from the first week of the season, it's the thing to watch this year, right? Because, I mean, it's not like there are other areas of the team where you're going, this is the place that you want to see the most improvement because ultimately it doesn't matter until you start at the quarterback position, maybe offensive line and hoping that, you know, Laramie Tunsil continues as a franchise left tackle, that you find some guys there. And ultimately, it's about finding what Jeff Ireland would dub to be acorns, right? Which are the smaller players you find that they sign from the AAF, that they sign an undrafted free agency, that they're filling out the roster with, that they've sort of kept around for a while and this is their chance to shine, that you find some guys that are value. You can get good contracts and can be on the team in years to come that start to establish who the Dolphins want to be under the new coach, Brian Flores. But ultimately, the only thing that could happen next year that would have long-term implications, really, would be if they went 0-16, which I don't think they will, and if Josh Rosen shows you the signs of a franchise quarterback. And that's the standard, right? The standard is not, well, he was decent. No, that he has a Baker Mayfield type of impact on this organization where Baker Mayfield becomes the quarterback of the Cleveland Browns and you go, whoa, that dude is a difference maker that he took over and he won seven games. I mean, people are going, oh, the Browns overrated, blah, blah, blah. They won one game over two seasons, three over Hugh Jackson's 40-year span in charge of the Cleveland Browns. Five, not 40 year, 40-game 40 span in charge of the Cleveland 40 years or three wins, that'd be pretty abysmal. but. Three wins in 40 games. And Baker Mayfield takes over and wins seven. That's astounding. And you saw it from the moment he came on. Was it a Thursday night game against the Jets, I think? That he came on. It was a
2: Thursday night game. I'm not certain if it was the Jets.
1: Look. Yeah, but, really look it up. yeah. But either way, he comes in on a Thursday night game late in the first half, and immediately you go, oh, wow. This is a difference. This is not unlike anything you've seen play quarterback for Cleveland before. And you saw it sustain over the rest of the year. He'd had like 400-yard performances against the Raiders, and they're moving the ball up and down the field, and they're fun to watch. And you can tell, obvious to the eye, that Baker Mayfield has changed the outlook of the Cleveland Browns. Thursday night versus Jets. Yep. And their fans are excited now, and their fans one year to the next. They trade for Odell Beckham. They've got a solid core of guys, and they're going, I mean they might get Kareem Hunt in the middle of the season which is grim but ultimately it could help them from a football standpoint but they're they're going we can win the division we can compete in the AFC because of one guy Baker Mayfield that they've been trying for decades to find you'll know as a dolphins fan of Josh Rosen's that guy and you know very much if the answer goes the other way but that's the standard for me is can he have a Baker Mayfield like impact on the team in his second season of the league, wasn't a good first year, but can he show at that level? The answer is no, you, you draft another quarterback, and you do whatever you have to do to get him. Because there's no point. There's no point otherwise in carrying on with Josh Rosen. That's the standard you have to hit as an organization. It can't be, well, he's fine, a quarterback. No. Franchise changing. The Dolphins have done enough. Nah, eh, he's fine. Ryan Tannehill. Nah, eh, he was fine. You carried on with Chad Henney. When it was abundant, he wasn't going to be that guy. I mean, you've tried a million guys. you go, eh, maybe. No more maybes. No. And if you don't know, go again. And that, for me, is a standard that Josh Rosen walks into this year. And I'm not terribly optimistic that he will reach it, but that ultimately is the standard that he's trying to reach. But uh, either way, for me, college football next year with the Miami Dolphins could end up being as interesting, if not more interesting, than their week-to-week results. We're back with more after this on WQAM.